everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. As a reminder, if this is your first time with the show, we are reviewing the films. We're talking about the films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. That's kind of our promise to you that the stuff that we talk about, it's not something you've heard of before. It's not something that's been written about a ton. We're going to the bottom of the barrel. We're finding gems, all that good stuff. I am, as always, one half of your Matt hosts. My name is Matthew Monagle. I am here to entertain and enlighten, and I am joined as always, by the other Matt, Matt Donato. How are you, friend? Still alive and still quarantined. Uh, what is it, June 15th? So It didn't used to be so important that we date stamp these episodes, but now I feel like everything changes daily. So this episode is being recorded on June 15th. So no aliens yet, but or maybe aliens, actually. I think I saw something. Whatever. A lot of weird stuff is happening right now. No, wait, wait. The aliens do exist. That is now proven, and we've just glossed over that. Also, the monkeys have COVID, and they're like a biological yeah. weapon basically now. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's where uh, 2020 is at on June 15th. <sighs> what a time capsule. Uh, so you know what? We're going to put all of that aside for a moment though. We're going to talk about movies and we're going to pretend like the world is not on fire. And we have brought in an awesome guest this week who has brought a, a movie that I cannot wait to talk about. So Donato, if you'll do the introductions, please. Today on the podcast, we have a filmmaker, a writer, and an all-around jack-of-all-trades. We have BJ Colangelo. Hi. Hello. Thank you for getting my last name correct on the first try. I'm very excited about it. Wait, is that really not a thing? If you would ask any substitute teacher I've had in my whole life, my name is BJ Colangelo, which sounds exactly like something you want to hear in an elementary school classroom. But that's not even like... But that's not even how it's written. Like, how, no, how it's, yeah. it's clearly written as Colangelo, but, you know, people see what they want to see when they look at words and what they think they mean. You know what? I, I will I will back you up here, BJ. As somebody who has many of the same letters in my last name that you have in your last name, as soon as people see like G's, L's, E's, and N's, they're just like, whatever. If I'm ballpark, it's as close as I'm going to get. I, t- I teach my kids how to say it by, you know, citing the best of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm like, it's like it Michelangelo, but I'm Ms. Colangelo. And they're like, oh, that's great. I remember forever. Like, yeah. Then again, I've gotten Donato, Donato. I, and then people just replace O's with A's. So yeah, things are weird, man. Like just read words. It's not hard. <laughs> uh, well, Miss um, Colangelo, I think I'm going to call you that for the rest of that because class is in session. Um, sorry, that was terrible. I feel really bad about myself. Anyways, you know, <laughs> I'm excited to have you on um, because I know that you have done a ton of different stuff for the horror community. You are you pop up in a lot of awesome publications. You've helped moderate some of the online communities as well. You you've really been like what I think of as sort of a steadying presence for a lot of different conversations that have happened over the last couple of years. So I want to I want to take this opportunity to kind of put the spotlight on you and talk about your early days with the horror genre. Like, what were those first couple of movies that you watched? How old were you like when did you first realize hey this horror genre this this might be my thing sure so i have um what i've discovered over the years is sort of an atypical childhood with horror and that my parents did not care what i watched um when i was a kid so um i actually shared this story earlier this week but my absolute earliest memory that i have as a child is being i don't know like four and I'm sitting on the couch with my mom and she has just rented the it mini series and she's holding the, the VHS tapes. And my dad walks in, sees me sitting next to her and goes, don't you think she's a little young for this? And my mom looks at me, then looks at my dad and goes, eh, she won't remember this. 
And that is my absolute earliest memory of my existence. So horror has always been around for it. Um, my mom is a is a diehard horror fan. Um, my dad does not like to watch horror movies because he doesn't like to be scared. But my dad likes to scare other people. He's a big prankster, big practical joker. So um, the idea of being scared is something that um, has always sort of been a presence in my life. But not being scared is in like, oh, I was like a worry wart kid. But that there can be fun with being scared. Um, so my, I, I guess my formative experiences were watching things um, like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play with my mom. But then also like my, one of my dad's favorite pranks is he had this old, like that old hobo clown as a, as a ventriloquist dummy. He had it since like he was a kid and he used to bury it in the, uh, in the laundry basket at the bottom of the of the laundry chute and then pull the cord up the laundry chute, wait for somebody to do laundry and then pull the cord so that it would jump out of the laundry basket and scare the shit out of you. So those experiences combined, you know, th- there was no way I wasn't going to love the genre. But then on the flip side, like my sister is terrified of everything. Um, so I really gravitated towards it. And now she is completely has a complete aversion to all of it. I think you you touched on the unique nature of that, but I, you're right. I've never talked to anybody who had that like weird mix of like in-person scares. And I I know obviously your dad wasn't trying to traumatize you, but like in-person frights and like video frights and the weird cocktail that that created, that's, that's kind of awesome. Like those are like parenting goals for me, I would think. And the other thing too, that I I, I want to make um, kind of clear is that my parents didn't, just like sit me in front of a television and say like, good luck kid, watch whatever you want. Um, They watched movies with me. And the reason they did that was because my mom was very strict on making sure that if I said, I want to watch this movie and she would tell me like, okay, well, you know, you want to watch child's play. This is about a doll that comes to life. So it's going to like be a scary doll movie. Can you handle this? And if I said, yes, like you're in it. And I wasn't allowed to turn it off because she knew that if I got too scared and was like, no, I don't want to watch this and turn it off and ran away, that my imagination would Mm -hmm. run wild and come up with things way worse than what's actually on screen. So they would sit there, they would watch the movie with me if like I didn't understand something, um, even if it was like a concept like bigger than my head of like, why is that kid walking around like a scary part of Chicago all by himself? I don't understand this. Where are his parents? Um, They would explain that to me. And then they would also explain like, how did they, how is he a werewolf? I don't understand. Well, honey, that's makeup. And they would talk to me about this. So I understood the conventions of filmmaking and like why things were scary um, and how they were made to be scary And that kind of took a lot of the sting out of it. That's not to say that things don't still scare me. Like they obviously do um, because horror is, you know, is a psychological manipulation game. Um, But having those moments and having those experiences with kind of hands-on parenting like that, I think really made a difference in how I really just needed the genre and was so fascinated by it because I wanted to know everything. See, that's really, I think that's really unique because coming from my background of having at least a mother who hid everything from me, 
I never got that kind of, I guess I'll call it hands-on parenting in that way, more of the, you're not ready for this, you can't handle this, oh no, this is too scary for you kind of thing, where I immediately, I guess I believed it in a way. I just kind of immediately said, oh yeah, no, this is too scary for me. And just like you said, I didn't have something in front of me to watch to actually see and make my own interpretation on and come out with my own thoughts on it. I immediately was just like, oh no, child's play, that's going to be too scary for me. And I would just see the box cover and my mind would go to the worst places possible. And for the longest time, I created something that was infinitely scarier than Chucky ever was. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And what's weird is I would would find fear in like the strangest places. Like, so talking about like box covers, I grew up uh, living three blocks away from like a mom and pop video store. And their back room was where all the horror was kept. So like behind the beaded curtain was not porn. It was horror movies. And I would go in there and I would just get bombarded with all of this horror imagery. And the things that would, that, that I always found to be upsetting are things that sort of still upset me. Um, Like they had one of the older boxes for night of the living dead, where it's, you know, the daughter and the mother screaming. And I was so upset about the idea of like a familial bond being destroyed because somebody's going to kill someone else. Like that was really upsetting to me. Um, I was also really against spooky font, like any sort of spooky font really like that was the no for me. So I did not see Rocky Horror until I was about 12, which is still very early for most people. But for me, like I had seen way worse, like more terrifying and like disgusting and depraved shit um, before Rocky Horror. But that bloody font, I was like, nope, I'm not playing this game. I don't like you bloody font. And I don't know why those were the things that like pushed me away. But movies that had like very innocent-esque looking uh, font, I was totally down with. And I don't know why font was what upset me because it shouldn't have. But I guess it's like the one thing my parents couldn't like explain to me because they don't know shit about typography. And then so were you anti-Goosebumps then? Because that was a gooey font, I would call it. So Goosebumps, and here's the thing, Goosebumps font did upset me. Like it was very upsetting. And the only reason that I could watch Goosebumps was because of the intro had the dog with the glowing eyes and I thought it was really funny so then I could like put it aside but the thing that was upsetting is that Goosebumps intro when the person on the billboard's face changes and they look a little bit too much like Michael Jackson that was upsetting to me because then my brain was like Michael Jackson and I I don't know why those are just the the weird the weird ways that the brain works, but I was obsessed with Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? So weird and eerie, uh, eerie Indiana. Like all of them, I clung to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about kind of the lens that you provided for those fragments of things that scare us. You know, I'm thinking back to my own childhood. It wasn't, it wasn't the stuff that really fucked me up. Wasn't like the movies that I heard people talking about, or you know, like the the posters of the VHS covers. I remember. <laughs> distinctly that there was one book at my local library that was mixed in with like the, the cartoons, you know, the Garfield books and Calvin Hobbes and things like that. And it was like a history of, I think it was, it must've been like a history of, of horror graphic, like comic book things. And I would just sit there and I'd flip through it and it would have all of these like tales from the crypt esque, you know, 1950s and sixties dime comic book novels. And it was all people like being buried underground or like drowning in tubes and evil scientists, like all of these people like on the verge of death and that, like that to me, those images devoid of context, 
were the stuff that scared the shit out of me so much more and so much longer than anything else, like anything else that I encountered in my entire adolescence. It was like one of those comic book covers without any kind of connection to anything else. Those, those things haunt me to the point where like just talking about it now, I'm like, oh yeah, that was really messed up. I'm glad I don't have that. I'm glad that library doesn't exist anymore. And then there's me who was afraid of everything and wouldn't <laughs> go near anything. I can remember a public library haunted house that was probably put together by like the librarians. So obviously it was going to be nothing super scary. Yet I was so young at the time and I was so averse to anything that could possibly scare me and terrorize me that I still remember stepping like three feet in and immediately going under whatever parent's jacket it was. And I wouldn't come out of the jacket and look at anything until it was over. I I was so averse to horror at that time because of anxiety, anything you want to call it. I was a very, very skittish child who avoided any kind of danger or peril. And this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you both brought up like, I guess, like books and libraries, because another weird thing is um, because my parents were so willing to let me read things or watch things, um, I kind of became notorious for it. And that meant that whenever the Scholastic Book Drive came to school, if you wanted to read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Alvin Schwartz, then you had to be nice to me that day because I'm the only one whose parents signed the waiver to let mm. let that book come home with me. Um, and like, you know, all of that imagery is just, you know, nightmare fuel. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so even though the stories themselves are not like super terrifying, it's just those illustrations are horrifying and I also don't want to make it seem like I was this like super brave kid that could handle everything I still got scared quite frequently and I guess just the difference in it though is that I loved the experience like that adrenaline rush for me was like I don't know it's like better than any drug that I've ever taken and I mean if, if high school tells me anything I was probably still trying to find that chase of what a horror movie could give me and Drugs didn't do it. So, um, you know, I stuck with horror. Well, talk about that a bit then, because, you know, you you had this stuff that set root so early for you at such a young age. Now, at what point did you realize in high school or in college that you were like, oh, this is, there? there's a career path here for me. There are opportunities I have as, as both a filmmaker and as a film critic to sort of lean into the elements of the horror genre that I like and to be able to like have a voice for myself in the space. So I started writing a blog, as did most people, um, in 2009 um, called Day the Woman. And at the time, I was only 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. Um, and I, I grew up in, the, in Chicago, in the greater Chicagoland area. But where I went to school is this town called Macomb, Illinois, um, where the closest Chipotle and the closest Starbucks were an hour and a half away. So it's like middle of nowhere, Illinois. And I was incredibly bored and I needed to stimulate myself in some way, shape or form. Um, so I used to get in fights all the time on the bloody disgusting uh, comment sections. Um, and I quickly realized that there weren't a lot of people uh, in those comment sections that uh, were women. And it usually ended up me versus, you know, every incel asshole horror fan um that was using the internet in in 2009 so I went screw it I'm gonna make a blog and I started making a blog and the idea was that I wanted to make something that was like hyper feminine and very much rooted in my experiences as a woman liking horror films because obviously 
we all have different gazes on our lived experiences uh, influence the way that we analyze and the ways that we see film. So, you know, I, I would write about, you know, what is Carrie from a woman's perspective or like, how do I, as a female horror fan, like the reality show Scream Queens on VH1? What does that, you know, what does that do for me, if anything? And from there, I, I was really consistent with my writing because I was really bored. And um, sort of these like bigger name uh, people, some of which are, you know, still around even today, still writing and working. Um, they would come across my blog. And I don't know if it was because it was like a gimmick that at the time I was a woman and I was a really young woman, but also that at the time I was still like, I was a world champion baton twirler and I did beauty pageants and I was in musical theater. Like I did not fit really any of like the, the cool like alt girl things that I sort of fall into now because I was still, you know, in these, in these, I guess, hobbies that typically, you know, you, you don't picture a horror person being a part of. So it was like this new interesting niche that people, I guess really gravitated towards. I mean, I would assume that they must have because I'm still around and I'm still, you know, kind of doing that today. But I realized pretty quickly um, that a lot of people felt seen by the work that I was doing. And I almost felt as if I owed it to them to, to continue doing the work and to, you know, it, start taking like film theory classes. I ended up getting, you know, a, a film theory uh, minor in college because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just talking out of my ass um, whenever I was doing this. And uh, I, I just sort of kept doing it. And then one thing would lead to another with, you know, so-and-so is going to actually pay you to do this for once. And it's like, whoa, that's big. Or, you know, I couldn't travel and go to festivals with people like, hey, there are these things called screeners where you can watch these festival movies at your house. I'm like, what? That's amazing. And, um, I just sort of kept doing it and I haven't stopped doing it. I'm kind of curious that you brought up, not curious, actually. I like that you brought up the fact that, you know, at the time you were a voracious horror viewer and someone who wrote about horror, yet you didn't fit the quote unquote, you know, stereotypical look of horror. And I feel like I still struggle with that a little bit myself because at times, like I'll show up to a festival like you talked about and it's full of horror fans, you know, who, who look the part, we'll say. And then I show up in like a polo and like khakis and I'm kind of like, yo, what's up everybody? And it's like, I almost, I get looks like I, like, what are you doing here kind of stuff? Yeah, that's very much a real thing. And that, that happened to me in all honesty until, um, until I got cancer because then I shaved half of my head because my hair doesn't grow correctly on this side anymore. So I just keep it shaved. And now suddenly I have like this alternative haircut and now I amazingly have more credibility than I ever did before. Like my work was not what gave me credibility. It's the fact that I now look like a cool horror girl. And I'm like, okay. But like when I had a tiara and like wore pink, then no one could take me seriously. And I mean, that's just, that's misogyny uh, overall, everything that's not exclusive to horror, but um, in, you know, this sort of alternative genre, um, you know, people, people carry some stock in that, which is, I think, ridiculous, but, uh, it's, it's a very real thing. And I think to, to act as if that doesn't exist is, is kind of ridiculous because it does. Yeah. Like I tweeted once or twice just about like when I was first coming up, I, I guess I would say, well, I'm, I'm still coming up What the hell am I talking about? But still <laughs> when I was earlier in my journey as a horror writer, I'd start talking about sports and I would notice my follower count would just kind of tick down a little bit every time I tweeted. And I was just like, 
all right, like, you know, yeah, I'm into horror, but I also am into watching baseball. And I'm also into all these other things that don't exactly fit the mold. But what the hell is the problem with that? Like, that doesn't mean I'm watching any less horror, no any less, or I'm not diving into this genre with the same level of enthusiasm. And it's, it's an interesting thing that I, you know, I wish wasn't as prevalent, like you said before. And a hundred percent, the misogyny thing is another thing I've never even had to deal with. So that's just another level on top of it. Oh, and like the sports thing is also very, very real. I mean, like I love hockey, which there's, I love hockey and baseball. Those are like my two ones. And like that, um, typically that garners me more attention, but I think it's also because like, oh, girl talking sports. But then like when I talk about professional wrestling, um, there's a, there's a decent amount of crossover with that with horror fans, but because professional wrestling is also sort of like the bastard sport, the same way horror is, um, suddenly I'm stupid because I like wrestling. And they're like, I can't, anything that you say now forever about horror is invalid because I know you like wrestling and anyone who likes wrestling is stupid. I'm like, "Uh, okay, sure. Okay. That's a lot of mental gymnastics you did to get to that point, but cool. I guess I'll take it. (laughs) The internet is good at that. I got to ask though, because as somebody is, I I don't have any preconceived notions about wrestling one way or the other, but I am curious. It seems like increasingly a lot of people who I really like who write about horror are also fans of wrestling. Like, and and I don't know if it's just one of those, I can't remember the condition or the the phrase, but like when you notice it, you start noticing it everywhere. What is it about, in, in your opinion, BJ, what is it about those two worlds that make them such, you know, natural fits for each other for, for a lot of folks? I think that the reason that there's such a crossover is, I mean, one, obviously, like, they're both the bastard genres. Like, if you like horror movies, you're seen as lesser than by most um, of society. They think that you're there's something wrong with you. Like, how can you enjoy that sort of material? And the same thing goes with people who enjoy wrestling. If you enjoy wrestling, it's it's constantly, like, you know, it's fake. How can you like that? And it's like, well, yeah, no shit, it's fake. We've always known that it's fake. No one has ever, I mean, outside of Vince McMahon, because he's a crazy person, um, has ever tried to make the world believe that it's real. Um, But the things that horror and wrestling um, have in common, and in all honesty, this also kind of piggybacks with uh, drag, like, like being a drag queen. Um, It's, it's, theatrical everything is heightened to a a 10 at all times um there's these theatrics and violence and um the the storytelling is so absurd but it's so fun that you kind of get lost in it and wrestling much like you know horror films like it's a game of psychological manipulation like they they use these people putting their bodies on the line to fight and they get you invested in the story, even though it's been scripted the whole time. Like they, the people performing, they know how it's going to end. You can try to guess how it's going to end. Maybe you'll be right. Cause just like a slasher film, there's sort of a formula that follows with it. But then every once in a while, they'll give you a swerve and it'll catch you off guard. And you're like, ah, I did not see that coming. This is great. And you get invested in, in that sort of storytelling. And I think that they follow a lot of these, these similar conventions. So it, it makes complete sense to me that there would be crossover. And then of course, obviously there's like spooky characters within wrestling or there are these like larger than life personas. And that, you know, lends itself to being like, like any monster movie you've ever watched. Yeah. Monagle, I, I uh, must admit I am a recent convert as well. And I had a childhood of WCW and WWF growing up. So I watched it religiously. I saw raw as a little kid and, you know, I was very into wrestling for a while I think I fell off for a good decade, though, so I, I wasn't into wrestling for a long time after that. But uh, our friend Amelia 
has got me watching AEW again. And the tag team of having Orange Cassidy being the best fucking wrestler I have ever encountered in my entire life. And the fact that I listen to Every Time I Die and they're one of my favorite bands. And I'm sitting there watching one of the pay-per-views. And in, you know, in these times in the quarantine, whatever we call it, AEW has adapted to doing live shows with just other wrestlers as the quote-unquote crowd. And they stand around the outside and that's how you have a little bit of interaction with a quote-unquote audience. And I'm sitting there and I just like, I'm having a double take moment. And I'm like, is that the guitarist from my favorite band standing on the side of the ring? What is he doing there? So I immediately text Amelia and she's like, oh, you're talking about the butcher. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, that's the butcher. He's a wrestler. He's a tag team with the, with, uh, the blade. And I'm like, wait, do I love wrestling again? I'm like, what? <laughs> and I love that. And in all honesty, that seems to be the case for a lot of wrestling fans right now is that we all watched it when we were kids and then we fell off usually like, you know, a little bit like after the Attitude Era, if not during the Attitude Era, which is, you know, like The Rock and Stone Cold. And, you know, when WWE did things like blackface and like lingerie matches, a lot of people fell off then, um, but now have been coming back to it because it's been, you know, changing and evolving and becoming this really interesting and weird sort of thing again. And it's it's fun. It's fun again. I mean, and it's the only sport that's going on right now. So, I mean, your options are limited. So quarantine has been bringing out some new wrestling fans. Well, I'm going to use that as an opportunity then to, to uh, pivot into talking about the show. Cause I heard the word theatricality. I heard the word violence and I heard the word psychological manipulation. And I thought, you know what, what better way to set up today's movie teenage cocktail. So we're going to, we're going to be right back. And when we do come back, we're going to talk about this film BJ's brought us. You know, we say this a lot, but we really could not do what we do both here on the podcast and on the website, certifiedforgotten.com, without the support of our patrons. So every episode, we like to take a moment and kind of give a shout out or, or hand over the creative controls to two of our patrons and let them speak their piece in the middle of an episode. So we've picked our patrons. Donato, you are the voice of the show. What's up, man? What, what, are, what are people saying today? The people are saying very relevant things today. So the first person we have up is a recurring, I guess I, w- I would be the reader, so a recurring person who gives me the thing to read, uh, Miss Amelia, who we already know from the podcast. You've seen her on the Patreon and all these things. So I don't need to introduce any anymore at this point. And her message is very simple. Tell people to buy stamps, wash their hands, shop local, and don't be a dick. Pretty straightforward Tip. to the point. Yep. Tip. I don't have I don't have anything to add. I don't have anything to clever to follow up with. I just like I'm just nodding. I'm nodding. No, just don't be dicks. That I'm pretty much the uh, motto of 2020. But we just can't stop being dicks. So I hope people start listening. Agreed. Should I go on to the next one? Let's do number two. Number two. Uh, I guess this is a personal. Do you want to read it? Even this is coming from Mama Monagle. So I feel I, I will read it. I will gladly read it. But if you want it, it's totally cool. It is coming from Marilyn Monagle, um, the, the, the mother of me. But I want you to read it because I want to respond to it. So got it. All right. From Marilyn Monagle. Testament 1983 just seems appropriate for 2020. So uh, I want to add to that. We talk a lot in the show about the relationship we have growing up with horror. And we've talked about the fact that we both grew up in pretty risk-averse households. I, I grew up in a pretty conservative household, and all of that is true, but I get my taste in horror. I get my taste in weird cinema from my mother, who grew up in the in the San Francisco area in Southern California, going to drive-in movie theaters and watching whatever science fiction and horror movies she could as a kid, and so she's carried that with her her entire life. 
So when she starts recommending movies to me, of course, she's going to recommend something like Testament, which is a movie about a suburban American family in the Bay Area who are trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic America. It's not a post-apocalyptic film in the traditional sense. It's not a wastelands and mutants and zombies. It's a film about a United States where part of the United States has been attacked and how do, a part that's completely untouched from that, how do you as a family kind of make sense of when your entire life has been fractured and shut down. So shout out to my mother who has great taste in movies, who gave me even better taste in movies and uh, who, who put something on my watch list, honestly, something that I'm going to go seek out and watch this weekend. Thank you, Bamba One. All right, let's get right back to it. Today's episode, let's go. All right, so today on the show, we're going to be talking about Teenage Cocktail. Now, Teenage Cocktail is a 2016 film uh, directed by John Carcetti, and it stars Nicole Bloom, who many of you will probably know from Superstore, and Fabian Therese. It's a story about a young girl, a 17-year-old girl named Annie, who moves to a new town and befriends a, a local dancer who kind of fills her head with ideas about potentially moving to New York City. They're kind of two loners, and so their friendship starts to blossom. And as part of this is a way of fueling their dreams and also of kind of escaping the small town that they're trapped in. They get embroiled in a cam girl, not a, a little bit of an intrigue with a, a local pool guy. I don't want to get too much into the storytelling of it, but it kind of becomes this, it's this overall exploration of, of friendship and love and what happens when you piss off Pat Healy, which is something that every movie, every good movie should have is an angry Pat Healy somewhere in there. So I want to start this conversation, BJ, by um, asking you, you know, this was the movie that that you picked and you were really excited to talk about. So what what made Teenage Cocktail the film that you wanted to bring to the show? When I first saw Teenage Cocktail, um, the first thing that I saw was the poster art, which is this bright, hot pink background. And then the two girls wearing um, cat masks looking into a, uh, a laptop. And because I am somebody who have who had used Tumblr um, during my college years, maybe to perhaps um, make a little extra money on the side, I looked at that image and went, "Oh, th- this movie's about cam girls. I am very into this." Um, so I waited and I waited and I waited for it to finally come out. And then it you know, had its festival run and I was blessed enough to be able to cover it um, during its festival run. And uh, I completely fell in love with this film. And I, I kept saying, this film has everything that I love. Um, I love the soundtrack. I love that it has, you know, these really interesting, you know, female characters um, I love that it is one movie for three fourths of the film and then takes a hard left into something really fucked up. Um, I love that it feels very real. I love that the characters uh, feel like people that I know. Um, and I love that it has like, you know, little little cameo performances from other from other character actors that I love. So everything that I love seeing in film is just kind of like all swirled up together. Um, I mean, and, and it's also, it's a queer movie at its, at its core. And there are not a lot of queer movies that aren't just about like, I guess, like queerness and identity. Like it, it's such like a non-issue, their queerness. And I, I just could not get enough of this movie. 
And the reason that I wanted to bring it is because I talk about this movie pretty frequently and it wasn't until I started looking up like, you know, possible movies for the show that I realized no one has reviewed this. Like no one is talking about this movie. And it was one that I loved so much that I was like, well, I have to bring this to the table because I, I think that more people need to see this movie because I think there is an audience for this that they, they don't know that this movie exists or that it's for them. Well, let me, let me start um, kind of the conversation here because th- this is the question I've been dying to ask you um, since I finished watching it. And I know, you know, in, in reading a little bit about the film and, and seeing what the director had to say, you know, the cast and the crew talked a lot about kind of the fact that Bloom and Therese were able to bring their own experiences. They were able to rewrite portions of the script in order to capture what it was like to actually be a, a teenage girl during this period. And it's, it's a, it's complicated in the sense that these are two girls. They're both underage, 17 or younger that are cam girls. The people that they're attracting and the people they get caught up with are clearly above the age of consent above 18 there's a lot of different elements here that kind of collide. So I want to start by saying, you know, what you've written a lot about the gays in films, the, you know, who the intended audience is, who's watching this, who it's written for, the perspective that people are supposed to adopt. What are your thoughts about the gaze of Teenage Cocktail? Like, is this, is this written to objectify? Is this written to sympathize and empathize? Like, you know, if somebody was going down and sitting and, and knowing that this is a queer film, like what should they have in mind about who, is, who this movie is written to adopt the point of view as? So I'm really, really glad that you asked that question because for me, when I was watching this, I was like, oh, this is a movie that queer girls are going to love. But at the same time, um, the gaze for queer women and heterosexual men, um, there are things that have crossover because if you are attracted to women, then obviously like you may see some of the same things, but not in the same way. And there are plenty of moments in the movie that punish you for enjoying the gaze that you have been given. And I think that that is so very important because they present, they present these, these girls in a way that, you know, sometimes feels a little bit titillating. And when that happens, it tends to also like point the finger back at you. And it's like, why do you like this? You creep they're underage. And I think that that's really, really important, especially because, you know, as somebody who, I mean, I'll, I'm fully open about it. Like I was a full loozy when I was, you know, in high school and I was very open sexually. And I had experiences like this when I was underage and I look back at them and I'm like, yeah, they they were fun. And at the time I loved it. I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing. And now as an adult, I can look back and go, oh, that was fucked up. That was not, not okay. And I think that that's what this movie does is it shows you these situations where you're like, oh, this isn't bad. This is fine. And then every once in a while you get that reminder, like, no, they're 17. And like, this is not fine. And I think, I, I love that it does that because I, I love movies that make audiences feel guilty for enjoying them because I'm a bad person. I don't know. I think too, the importance in the showing of the gaze as well, whenever they do have a moment where it could be viewed as the, you know, the characters on screen are these two young girls and things are getting, as you said, a little titillating and they get a little exciting and then they immediately go back to that alternate view of either Pat Healy or the cam. So like, I love how that's how they use 
that little device to then say, yeah, no, if you are actually enjoying this and you're actually getting the rise out of this that we think you might be, oh, here's what you look like doing that. And then it's like cut to Pat Healy, who is neglecting his wife and sitting alone by himself in front of his like computer huddled over going like, yes, please. Yes, absolutely that. And like, I mean, even the even the very first time that the two of them, you know, do anything together and she's like, well, what about the camera? And she's like, you know, that's it's it's just you and me like that. Don't even pay attention to that. And you have this moment where you like you realize like you are a voyeur looking in on like what is like a very real moment for these girls and you're creeping on it. And like that makes you, you know, kind of kind of weird in that regard um and in all honesty the only thing the the only thing that is unrealistic in any of those moments is how how quickly and how um I guess how high the dollar amount is that people are tipping because that is not how how no one is dropping 25 bucks for uh for a jeans on makeout session that's not happening but no, I, I've really liked how it it plays it plays with that gaze. And like as a as a queer person watching it, I was like, oh, this is very sweet. And then anytime something did get titillating, I, I immediately had that like red flag go off of like, I shouldn't be watching this. And um, th- I guess that's that's the question of who is watching. Like, are is that red flag going off or are you ignoring it? And that's a whole lot of, you know, an individual's problem. And then so here's, I I think here's a question coming from me now, um, just out of curiosity and someone who's, you know, I've watched, uh, you know, a bunch of queer films and trying to get, you know, my own kind of understanding, I guess, in a way, like of the community and stuff like that. But as someone who, again, has been watching a lot of queer films and sees something like Teenage Cocktail, I'm, I guess I'll use impressed as the word, but I think Teenage Cocktail isn't trying to earn credibility as a queer film. Uh, I've watched a lot of films that queerness is part of the narrative in a way that it's kind of thrown in your face to say, hey, also, we're a queer film. Look what we're doing. We're going to kind of make it a little stereotypical. And we want to make sure you know this is the whole point of this, where Teenage Cocktail just feels natural. It's just two people in love, and it doesn't really matter at that point beyond the two people on screen. And I feel like the chemistry is so good that... It just feels like such a natural film. And I also feel like you don't see it that often uh, with this kind of subject matter. And I'm I'm just curious if that's just, you know, my own misunderstanding or my own inexperience in a way, or if that actually is something that Teenage Cocktail does well. Oh, no, you're right on the money. Like, it is so refreshing to watch this movie because it's it's such a non-issue. Like, their queerness is not the definitive part of their identity does it feed into that idea of you know how frequently queer women especially are fetishized by straight men absolutely that goes back to that being part of the gaze but their actual connection between each other um you know it's it's so second to who they are as people um you know it's it's what brings them together but it is in no means like what defines them and even the interactions with the people around them uh, like the the mom at one point, you know, walks in on them uh, making out and she doesn't say anything about it. She doesn't make them feel bad about it. She just goes like, okay, I'm going to do your laundry, leaves, closes the door and then opens the door back up, which, you know, lets the audience know like, okay, mom knows for sure that like they're doing stuff and she's keeping the door open because that's, you know, the parent thing that you do when you have teenagers and, you know, they're, they're in a bedroom together. Um, 
so you have that moment or, you know, there's a moment with the, with like some boys in school that, you know, you know, spread some rumors about them. And it's never this like awful, like homophobic thing about, you know, you know, it doesn't depict violence against queer people. It depicts violence against people who happen to be queer. And there is a, there's a distinction in that regard. This is not the opening scene of it chapter two. This is a situation that happened to two girls. They just happen to be queer. It's not because they are queer. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's what it's what stuck with me too about seeing uh, Teenage Cocktail because I was also able to cover it after I think it was South by Southwest Film Festival and you know it was about 2016. And the odd thing to me about Teenage Cocktail is why it wasn't received after it hit festivals. And I, thinking back on it, it's one of those films that made me want to start this podcast because I remember being at South by Southwest and sitting with Perry uh, Nemiroff and we both see this film and we both go write these glowing positive reviews and we're talking about it and saying, you all have to see this when it comes out. And then like a year went by and it never came out and we didn't hear anything on distribution. And this was the early days I would say of like Netflix starting to get into the game of grabbing movies and just putting them up there and not really doing anything with them because it just hit Netflix and no one talked about it again. And it's such a disappointing thing, especially for a film like Teenage Cocktail that does exactly what we say it does. And, you know, queer cinema is underrepresented. And the fact that this could have been handled by in a different way by a different distribution company, like it kind of makes me a little sad that it just got quote unquote dumped. It really breaks my heart. And I get really frustrated sometimes because um, like one of, so one of the production companies behind this is Snowfort with like, you know, Travis Stevens and a lot of people I see frequently comment things like you know anything Travis Stevens makes I'm gonna watch it and then I look at the things that they're into and it's all of the you know male-led movies of his and it's not the ones like like Teenage Cocktail or like you know he produced that one too and that one also slaps real hard and you should check it out but you know I think people got so put off by the fact that this movie is very much like aggressively you know, feminine. And I, I, and there's a difference between aggressively feminist and aggressively feminine. This movie is very feminine. It, you know, that poster is, is hot pink. It has like neon cursive font. It is very, very girly. And for a lot of people who don't realize that this movie would, you know, be something they would enjoy because of, you know, that hard left that it takes, um, they probably saw that and went, nope, and moved on to something that, you know, I guess coming full circle, like has like bloody drippy spooky font. And it's like, that's such a disservice to this movie because this movie is really incredible and going to the audience that this would probably really, really flourish with. Um, I, I highly doubt that this movie would ever fall under like the LGBTQ label on Netflix or Hulu because it isn't that in your face. This is not gay best friend. This is not blue is the warmest color. So it's probably not going to, get put under that umbrella so then when queer kids are looking for content they're not going to find it either and it's a it's a real shame because I think some of the best movies that are made are these ones that don't fit nicely into these genre boxes but when a movie doesn't fit into that box it's punished in the long run and it sucks yeah like it's that whole thing of it's honestly refreshing to see Not that Teenage Cocktail is mediocre or normal in any way. I think I like it more than that. I would put it a little higher, but it's just refreshing to see 
a normal film about queerness that isn't trying to posture or be performative about it. But then, like you just said, if it's not posturing and being performative about it, I mean, look at Twitter the last week. We don't have to get into it. But if you want to be performative, you get all the attention. And that's kind of just what sucks about it. Yeah, uh, very much hard agree in in that regard. And um, like my my wife and I host a queer event, well, did before, you know, COVID um, at the bar where we both work at. And we frequently like do these queer events where we will show movies. And this is one of those movies that like, I always want to, that I always want to put on. But then I know that like, if you're watching this for the first time, like it may not be queer enough for some people. And that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very weird um, because the representation of queer people is so shitty. Um, I think even within our own community, we sometimes struggle with representation that isn't, you know, in a wholly positive light because these, these girls are queer. Yes, but they're also making a lot of fucking mistakes and they're, you know, making some pretty bad, there's a lot of bad decision-making going on in here. There's a lot of self-destructive behavior going on in here. And, uh, that's also very real and that is very true to a lot of queer people's experience but I think some people might be averse to it because like shh don't tell the secret like you know we we fell into this world of respectability politics when you know marriage equality was happening where it's like no no no, we're just like you you know if if not we're even better look at we've had these relationships for 60 plus years please let us get married like but not all queer people are this like squeaky clean thing sometimes we do things like sell our bodies on the internet when we're underage and that's also a real experience and I don't know I like that this I like that this film is willing to portray that even though um I can definitely see why some people would not be a fan of it the thing that stuck out for me in this film and it it kind of I think it kind of pertains to the conversation the two of you are having you know, I grew up in a, a very different environment, um, had a very different high school experience, I think, BJ, than you. You know, I, I grew up in a pretty religious household. I was homeschooled for a few years um, to make sure that I had a religious focus to the education. I've talked about that before. But for me, um, you know, sex was early, early, early on ingrained in me that it was this like, <laughs> honestly, this terrible thing that it was, it, you know, it was this bad thing and you were supposed to wait until you're married and all of this stuff. And you know, I've spent kind of my entire life with this warped idea of what sex is or should be. And because of that, when I watch a lot of movies, you know, the majority, the default position for a lot of films, teenage films, queer films, whatever they may be, is sexist trauma, especially early sexist trauma. And I think the thing that that really stood out for Teenage Cocktail, I mean, the first experience, the first sexual encounter really that Annie and Jules have is part of a foursome. It's two couples that are kind of drunk and having fun together. And that's the first time that Annie and Jules really get to enjoy each other's company. And there's that. I don't want to conflate it because it's underage and illegal, but there's the later thing that happens with Pat Healy. The sex in this movie is not traumatic. It is not defining. It is not this thing that either of these characters are never going to be able to get over. And to me, that was like watching a movie where sex is just sex, or it's not some sort of psychological scar that you're going to have to spend years and years and years to get over. I was surprised at how different that felt and how much that seemed unlike a lot of the movies that I had watched before. I was going to say, I think especially with teen movies, so many teen movies that are, that have anything to do with sex, like, I guess just like the queerness, like that's the central idea of like losing your virginity or, you know, whatever it is, like it becomes the thing. And in this movie, it's just a thing. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, Monaco, I've seen your uh, acapella videos from high school and uh, you're going 
You're going to tell me that you were not getting laid on the reg after those? Uh, those were college. Thank you. Oh, that was college. Oh shit. My college acapella group. Um, and you know, the performance was its own reward really. (laughs) Um, I'm going to stand up for you because, um, I am a like, like one plus one star swing choir, musical theater dork. And I got laid all the time, but, um, that actually, that actually kind of goes into why I love this film so much because, I mean, like if you follow, if anyone follows me on Twitter or if you've met me in person, um, it's, it's not a thing to say to like, try to sound like I'm really cool or like really impressive or whatever. But like, I have like dumb big tits. Like I'm just going to say what it is. And I, they were not something that happened in adulthood. Like they happened when I was very, very young. And, um, you know, I was, I started getting sexualized when I was like 11 and I didn't know what was happening, but like people thought that I was way older than I was. And I had to kind of come to grips pretty fucking quickly with like how the world around me worked. And because I was so used to people either making comments or, you know, making assumptions about me as a person because of a part of my body that I had zero control over, um, sex really stopped being you know, a a big, like important thing in my life, because when you can't go to the mall without somebody who looks like 30 years older than me asking me, are they real? Like sex really stops being this like special dreamy, you know, very important thing that I think so many people grow up believing. Um, Because I was like, it's, it's clearly not when, you know, I I'm getting sexualized or, cat called or whatever at any given moment of, you know, in trying to eat lunch at a food court, trying to, you know, take a test and noticing the kid sitting across from me is like unable to focus because my boobs are at the same level as like the table, what we're writing on. Like when that sort of stuff gets bombarded in my brain, like it's such a non-issue in my life. Like any of the sex that I had when I was younger, it was never this like beautiful, oh my God, life-changing experience. It was just a thing that happened. And I mean, I, I'm also very, very vocal on social media and in my writing that like I have experienced sexual abuse. And I think that the reason that I don't ha- like, I, I don't have this like consistent trauma response, because that's also an important thing. Like, Trauma is not an event that happens to you. It's the reaction and the response to it, which is why like some people, you know, who saw 9-11 like are can never go on an airplane. And some people are like, oh, that sucked. You know, trauma is the response. And the reason I don't have a continuing trauma response to any of this is I think I just kind of was very desensitized to, you know, sex as as an important milestone to begin with. So then when like my quote unquote, like virginity was taken from me. Like it didn't fuck me up. I was like, well, this was a terrible experience and I have a lot of trust issues, but like I can, I can get past this. I can get through this. And I think that's why I gravitated towards this movie so much because it's like, oh yeah, these girls get it. Like they, they get it in, in the sense of like, it's just a thing and it's fine. And like, if somebody's going to be willing to pay for, pay for this, then fuck it. I mean, obviously they're, they're too young to be (laughs) consenting to these ideas, which is something that I haven't seen. um, I really haven't seen represented until last year with um, 
Euphoria on HBO. There's a character who does who does this and has a very similar mentality to them. But th- like this is very unheard of. This like it's so it's sex positive high school movies don't exist. No, not at all. And I think there's also talking about the Pat Healy character before and how they use the Pat Healy character to basically turn the audience into a voyeur and make, like you said before, make you feel bad about enjoying what you're watching in that moment because you shouldn't be. They are underage. This is a mm-hmm. bad thing. But we are, as just you said before, there are times where women or young girls mature faster than others. Things like that happen. And the juxtaposition against later on when Joshua Leonard's character, who is a father of one of the girls, and he finds one of the photos that the girls have taken, and it's them in their underwear in a seductive pose. And so first, we have been the voyeur as the Pat Healy character. We have been the negative voyeur. We have been the perv. We have been the disgusting man. And then now we are Joshua Leonard, who is a father. And he immediately looks back to his daughter, who is who was, you know, in real life in the scene. She's fully clothed. She's wearing pajamas and she's just talking to her dad. But now dad has seen that picture and dad looks back and he sees his girl in her underwear now. And he can't get that image out of his head. And like the horror that comes over his face, he's seen the same thing that Pat Healy's character has. But now he sees it as a fa- like we're seeing it as a father. I, I think it's just a really powerful way of playing those two characters against one another and being like, Hey, every time you do this, like fucking remember this man. Yeah. And it's, I, I love that moment so much because something that I think is, is so hard to explain to people is that like, so I don't know if either of you've ever seen assassination nation, but there's, yeah. So, you know, there's, um, there's the principal who has, you know, pictures of his daughter when she's like, like four or six, like taking a bath on his phone and everyone, you know, during those leaks, because that picture is leaked at the same time as like his porn history, people put them together and it's like, oh, he's a child molester. And it's like, no, there's nothing like inherently sexual about like seeing your child that way. But I also recognize that for my own sanity, Um, I have never been around my father without a bra on, like even under my tank top, because I know that if my dad, for whatever reason, ever saw me like topless, that I have the biggest boobs he's ever seen in his life. So then when like in in for the rest of my dad's life, when he thinks like, what are the biggest boobs I've ever seen? He's going to go my daughter. And that's fucking weird. So like, I know I'm not like, I, I know that that's a reality because it is. And like, it's, it's not, you know, it's not like this inherently gross or sexual thing, but it's a weird thing to come to terms with. So like, you know, cause there are plenty of, um, plenty of people who do sex work and their parents are fully aware that they do it. And it's, it's an instance of like having to, to understand that like, there's nothing inherently sexual about seeing your, your child do sexual acts. But once you see it, like it becomes real. Like my parents know that I have sex. They've known that I have sex. I guarantee they've probably had discussions about like, how does it work that, you know, her wife is trans when they have sex? How does that work? I know that these are conversations they've probably had, but seeing it is entirely different. And that like, so having that moment where Joshua Leonard has seen it and now he can't unsee it, um, I think is like horrifying and such a powerful moment and i'm glad that they did it because 
it's this this weird side of of acceptance that no, everyone is too afraid to talk about and everyone is way too afraid to address or acknowledge. Yeah, and I think it's even more important how you just said how he comes to terms with it because it's not an explosion. It's not a blow-up moment. In any other movie, that would have been a climactic fight between daughter and father where there's lots of yelling, things are thrown, and someone's chased out of the house or grounded or something of that nature. But what Joshua Leonard's character does is, again, he is horrified. Do not get me wrong. He is horrified, mortified, looking at his daughter, and he can't unsee it. But he just gets all kind of like quiet, and he does the thing of like, remembering an innocent time when he did something for his little girl mm-hmm. and you know she picks up on it she's like what's you know what's going on here she shuts her laptop after she sees the pictures and maybe she knows a little bit too but again joshua leonard just kind of leaves the room and there's still a good amount of movie left and it's never really weird between them after that he still kisses her goodbye he still acts like the father and i'm sure he's still tormented and haunted by it a little bit but yeah, the coming to terms of just, okay, this is something I've seen. This is something she is doing. Uh, fuck, let's just move on with our lives and just kind of live with it is, again, something that would be handled very differently in another kind of film. Yep, and I think that that's what makes this movie so powerful is because it doesn't lean into that like obvious sort of world. I mean, I can only I can only speak from my own experiences, but like, I know that when my parents found out that I was sexually active, it was not treated as like this horrible, like, Oh my gosh, are you being safe? Ah!" Like it wasn't anything like that. It was just like, okay, if this is what you're choosing to do, then okay. Just like, you know, please, please take care of yourself. And like, they were so matter of fact about it, but I know plenty of other parents, like it would have been a huge deal. So I guess for me, I was just like, ah, I'm so validated in this moment. (laughs) I was so bad about hiding things as like a college kid and high school kid. (laughs) So like I outed myself way too early. I forget what I did. I left like rappers on my bed or something. And it was just like, okay, if you're going to be sexually active, at least you're using protection. Thank you, Matt. Just don't get anyone pregnant. And I was like, all right, agreement done. And it was just like the (laughs) unspoken rule moving forward. And I'd still mess up. Like I brought my laundry home one time from college and I left like in the pocket, like three condoms. My mom was like, just just don't leave them there. Just like have them on you so I don't have to find them. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I love you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I love that. I, I do remember my dad being like horrified the first time um, he did laundry and like I had like a thong or something in there. And he was just like, why? What are you doing? I was like, it's so I don't have underwear lines. I'm not like walking around public in a thong. And he was like. <laughs> why would you put that? Why would you say that out loud? Like, and he just like was not having it. (laughs) So that's when I started doing my own laundry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really get a birds and the bees. I got a little quick old, uh, just, just be safe. Don't do anything stupid. And, uh, yeah, this is awkward. I don't want to talk about this. I'm like, all right, get out of here, dad. (laughs) We're good. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say like, yeah, I got mine like very, very early because, you know, like I said, I hit puberty very early. Um, I don't know how any of your schools were. I went to, you know, like an, an urban public school. So we actually had pretty decent sex ed because, you know, teen pregnancy was an actual issue. But third grade is when they started having like the your body's going to change uh, class. And um, I didn't have to go because I was already menstruating. So they're like, well, you know what this is. We're not going to waste your time. You can like go hang out in the library or something. Um, so 
yeah, I had like kind of like a Carrie White experience where my mom had to pick me up from school because I thought I was dying. And she was like, oh, God, I thought I had a couple more years. I'm so sorry. And I was like, you knew this would happen, like just freaked out. (laughs) So then, you know, I'm nine years old and, you know, my parents were good at explaining things. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, you're going to bleed and you're going to do this forever and it's going to suck. They were like, this is why you bleed. And it's because it's part of how babies are made. And I was like, what? (laughs) So I like got all of this like very, very, very early. And I'm I'm incredibly thankful that I got it when I did because again, I think it kind of destroyed some of that mysticism behind like sex. No, I had the stereotype high school. You had one semester of gym where you didn't go to gym and you went to sex ed and it was everything that's ever been in any movie. The teacher says the word penis, half your class erupts laughing because they think it's funny just to hear the word penis. You can't get any work done. And then the bell rings. So yeah, that was that was sex ed. <laughs> and then just a bombardment of like terrifying photos of STIs, like way too close up. Absolutely. I One day, like the activity was like, everyone think of everything you've ever heard a penis called and a vagina called. And I'm like, how is this productive? I don't know what we're doing here. Just <laughs> listing nicknames for genitalia on a board. But sex ed. God, we need sex, comprehensive sex education in schools so bad. Anyway, I feel like we got off topic. Unless yeah, we mom, did. You want to throw, <laughs> throw something in here? No, you're good. I mean, again, homeschooled. So don't really have anything yep. to, to, to contribute to the whole sex ed conversation. Um, I do. Before we wrap up, though, I do want to talk a little bit about the end of the film. Because, BJ, you mentioned that it does do a really, really hard swerve near the end. Um, a lot happens in that last 15 minutes. So... You know, if if we we often acknowledge the fact, and I think you kind of touched on it earlier, there are people that will watch movies and all they want are like the set pieces, right? Like they want the big violent moments, they want scenes of blood, they want conflict, they want that kind of stuff. And I, and I think that for all of the reasons that we've talked about, you know, teenage cocktail avoids a lot of that easy kind of simple stuff, but there is quite a good payoff at the end. So. BJ, talk to me about the the ending and how that kind of like, if you think that's a fitting cap to everything that these two girls have been through over the course of the film. Um, I love the ending of Teenage Cocktail because I feel like it it takes the comments and the things that people say to women on the internet that they're upset about, like that, that they don't like for any given reason. Um, and it makes it real. And that makes it, really terrifying um i mean i'm a i'm a a horror twitter person i guess because that's apparently an identity now um and i'm told at least once a week that like someone's going to kill me or you know rape me or i've been told i'm going to be skinned alive or whatever by dudes who are just mad that like i either don't want to give them attention or the fact that i'm queer which means you know they can't pursue me or because I'm a woman who dares to have an opinion, any, any number or combination of those things. And there are days where I am like, whatever, like this guy's never going to do anything. But every once in a while, like all of that weight will hit me. And I'm like, one of these days, one of these like fools is going to show up to a horror convention and like actually kill me. Like this is going to happen one of these days. And I'm going to have to like prep myself to handle that. And the end of this movie, um, I mean, I guess mega, mega spoilers, um, you know, Pat Healy's character gets found out that he's, you know, had uh, an in real life encounter with these girls. 
um, his wife takes their son and leaves. They have this phone call where she even says like, not again. So clearly he's done something like this before. And he, instead of, you know, holding himself accountable and recognizing that like he needs help, uh, he takes it out on, on the girls and, um, you know, tracks them down and tries to kill them. And that's way too real for me, for, uh, for most people. And, uh, all I can think about is like, like when did Elliot Rogers happen? Was that like 2018 or was it, you know, around the same time, but you know, this kid wrote a manifesto about girls turning him down and then killed like seven people. And this like horrifying world, that's very, very real. And, I think so many people get caught off guard by that ending where they're like, Oh my God, that came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. That's real. Like that to me, that makes complete perfect sense. It's just one of these guys finally did what they said they were always going to do. And to me, like it bums me out because then the movie does kind of fall into like the barrier gaze trope, which is a very common thing in queer films, but it's one of the few that I don't actually get mad about because it fits in the world like it doesn't feel like the characters are being attacked because like they have to be punished for being queer it fits in the world of like women are harassed and you know blamed for you know like men are shitty and do shitty things and women are often the ones that have to pay the price for it and that sucks um and it's a very bleak uh sort of sort of final act but like it's not one that is out of the realm of possibility in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, for me, teenage cocktail is one of those films that I'm very happy every time it comes up and someone kind of goes, look, yeah, well, that's not really a horror film. And I go, no, it is like teenage cocktail is a horror film to me. It's psychological horror the whole way through. If you're noticing Pat Healy's character the entire time, isn't it? He's very insidious in his actions and he's very creepy and he's, you know, like he's a villain in a way. I think the, the payoff for me, actually, I take it back. No, the payoff for me works. I think the struggling point for a lot of other people is going to be that payoff. And it's just going to be the fact that we don't get a bigger stalker vibe the entire film. And it's unconventional horror, I would say, uh, on the mainstream definition. But I I agree with everything you said in the way that they do handle the ending. And I think the ending caps exactly what it's been building to the entire time. I mean, Pat Healy's character gets denied over FaceTime or, you know, over the chat camera, we'll call it. And then he finds them on their Craigslist posts. It's, you know, everything he does is not okay. Everything he does is very fucking horrifying and traumatic. And if you don't recognize that as horror, I, you know, I feel like that's a little bit of an issue. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it, unfortunately, this relates to some stuff that's kind of going on in the horror world that because Pat Healy's character isn't explicitly saying things like I'm going to jerk it to these high schoolers and then attempt to kill them. Everyone's like, Oh, it doesn't seem that bad. That that seems like that, that ending doesn't seem like it fits. It seems a little out of nowhere. And it's like, no, you're getting all of these red flags leading up the entire way. Like he has escalating behavior but we've normalized so much of this like bad behavior and this like predatory shit that people don't recognize it for what it is. And that's what makes it increasingly infuriating when people criticize this movie for that ending. And I'm like, 
it's a whole lot of your problem that you didn't see these red flags. But I, I can tell you that I saw them the entire way through when he's sitting there at dinner and he's stroking his finger that doesn't have his wedding ring on it. I'm like, that is a massive red flag because I am seeing right now that if you lost that part of your life, if you could not have your cake and eat it too, then you're going to take that cake knife and you're going to try to slice someone up with it. Yeah, that's such a great shot because you see Nicole Bloom's character kind of she notices it, too, correct? Oh, yeah, she notices yeah. it like she doesn't acknowledge it. But like you can tell on her face like she knows like, oh, he is touching where a wedding ring should be. But, you know, even even in that instance, you know, she doesn't have this like, oh, I bet he's married because then there's also the idea of like, you know, maybe he just got divorced. Maybe he just left his wife. Um, you know, she's she's unsure. And because of that, even she's, you know kind of excusing these these red flags because again we we raise and like socially condition people to be on the lookout for these like very overt signs of danger that we don't teach people about like you know these these microaggressions these like little red flags like that you need to give as many attention because yeah you know he may not be i mean they're 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 young enough where like, you know, statute of, you know, limitations on, or not statute of limitations, but um like age of consent becomes like kind of an issue, but for all intents and purposes, like they're completely consenting to the actions that they, that they do with him, whether or not they're old enough to legally do it, you know, take that, take that out of the equation. Um, so he's not like abusing them um, in like a traditional sense, but it's still a, problem it's still bad it's still behavior that needs to be held accountable for and the end of the movie proves that like he can't hold himself accountable he just wants to blame the women who outed him for being a bad person and we see that far too often where I'm not going to apologize for what I did I'm not going to hold myself accountable for what I did I'm just going to blame the women because they got me in trouble yeah and I'll end on coming full circle and looking back at the title a teenage cocktail itself and i love the fact that that title is exactly representative of what the film is the film is a it's a cocktail of toxic ingredients that are swirled together and everyone has a bit of accountability i mean as much as very much as nicole bloom and fat and Teresa's characters are the victims here they make some they make some shitty choices i mean you know, mm-hmm. but we don't have to get into them, but they make some shitty choices just as Pat Healy's character makes worse and much shittier choices. Um, but even going back to AJ Bowen's like principal character who is just playing like the good girl's card. And, he, you know, every time he calls him into the office and it's just the same kind of rhetoric that would turn off any kind of child. It's again, it's a lot of these toxic, toxic ingredients, just like alcohol that get all mixed all together. And, Honestly, you get caught up in the moment, having a good time. And that's on sometimes when the worst shit happens. It makes me think of, um, there's a line in the movie Hard Candy where Ellen Page's character is yelling at Patrick Wilson. And she goes, when a kid says, hey, let's make screwdrivers, you say no and you take away the alcohol. You don't race them to the next drink. Like, aren't you the adult here? And like, that's what I think about with this whole movie is like, they are making this teenage cocktail and there is an adult here that can take that away. And he's like, nope, drinking it up with you. And it's like, well, then you're, <laughs> you're the one at fault. Take the alcohol away from the children. Because 
in, you know, in a court of law, if you were the one distributing alcohol to the minor, it doesn't matter what they did while they were drunk, you're in trouble too. That feels like a fitting end to that conversation. That's a, that's a perfect topper. Boom. Can't see it, but I'm dabbing. <laughs> nice. Uh, now we all know too. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. If you can, if you can send us a photo or something, we'll be sure to upload it alongside the episode. That's not going to happen, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that, that was our teenage cocktail episode. Um, BJ, I, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming on and having this conversation. I think that this is I, a movie like this is not, there's not going to be easy conversations about a movie like this. And I think that, that a lot of the stuff we talked about today, I know enhanced my own viewing and I kind of, I can't wait to go back and watch it again with some of the stuff that I that didn't immediately come to my own mind. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity here at the end to promote yourself. So if people want to see your, your film, if people want to read your writing, I know that you had a piece as of June 15th that just went up on let the right one in. That's really good. You know, what are some places that people can go to, uh, to, to seek you out and see what you have to say about stuff? Sure. So the easiest place to find anything that I write is just to follow me on Twitter because I don't have like a writing home. I write everywhere. Um, and my Twitter handle is just my name. So just BJ Colangelo. Um, and I do have a queer uh, horror short film called Labrys um, that's been making the rounds. I mean, mostly virtually at this point because LOL festivals. Um, but if, if you want to check that out, if you can see it, I know that it's playing at the Soho uh, horror fests, uh, pride night. Um, and, uh, hopefully some other places in the future once they figure out what they're doing with their festival <laughs> in quarantine. Yeah. Bit of a bummer there. Uh, Donato, what's up, man? Promote yourself. Uh, well, before I promote myself very quickly, I do want to touch on the fact that teenage cocktail currently sits at hundred percent rotten tomatoes with those five reviews. So uh, before I promote myself, I do want to promote the fact that 100%. I mean, I, it's, I don't know what you're waiting for on this. It, it just meets our criteria, but that's five fresh reviews, including people like me and Perry Nemiroff and Heather Wixon, man. I don't know who else needs to listen to, but BJ, why is yours not up here? Because I was not a tomato certified critic and I'm still not. <laughs> Yep. that's the, and this is again the issue that we bring up with the podcast because there are so many goddamn voices that should be out here on films like teenage cocktail giving it more praise and actually giving it the quote-unquote percentage that people would look at yeah we wind ourselves up about that like every other episode it's it's the heart it's the horror community stuff it's just we know there are so many writers in the horror community that just aren't represented on rotten tomatoes and arg which is such a frustrating thing when you see people who could not give fewer shits about horror than writing reviews about horror films. Get, get out of here. <laughs> Look at any mainstream horror film and it's always going to have the critics that you know are going to write the negative review because they just don't give a shit about horror. Like you said, they're always going to approach it from a closed off mindset where they know they're going to hate it. And it's just like, why? What's the point at that point? Like, wh why even do that? Why not give it to someone knowledgeable about the horror genre and that can actually mm -hmm. write something of value? Agreed. In any case, apologies. <laughs> that was my tangent on the actual certified forgotten aspect of Teenage Cocktail. But if you would like to hear me rant about that stuff nonstop, you can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram. You can check out what I'm watching on Letterboxd under the same name. And you can read my writing at places such as, at this point, Slash Film is still in the mix. Uh, just follow the socials. I'll throw my stuff out there and uh, keep an eye out for more Certified Forgotten things in the future. 
well, by then it'll be the present, right? By now, by now you will have seen the cool thing that we're working on for Certified Forgotten. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as for myself, you can follow me on social media. Lab Splice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E is my Twitter handle. I'm on Letterboxd. I don't remember my username. I'm on some other places. I don't remember those usernames. I have a pretty unique last name. Search for it. You'll be able to find me. Uh, yeah. And if you enjoyed today's show, if you enjoyed the other shows, please be sure to check it out. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Things like that go a long way towards making sure we can continue to bring in awesome guests like BJ. So we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. But BJ, again, thank you so much for bringing this film. Thank you so much for having this conversation. It was a lot of it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, and thank you for letting me talk about how big of a slut I was in high school. I thank you for letting me talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing to contribute. Donato, do you want to take us off in our usual way? Uh, let's give it an old demon wind. <laughs> <laughs>